The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. That was your doing. Thank you. And now as your, your people, we are, are here together to hear from you and pray, will you speak? Teach us and guide us. The, the material in front of us this morning has particular content, has particular bent to it. But in, in all the different ways that we are in need this morning, would you take something that's here and touch individuals and speak to them? Meet your people and grow us up, we ask. Thank you, Lord. Amen. We've probably all experienced the awkward pressure of giving money when you weren't exactly expecting to and didn't really want to. For me, sometimes it happens when, say, I'm on vacation and I'm worshiping in another church, and it's as if I didn't expect it. Suddenly the offering plate's coming down the row, and I didn't bring my checkbook. I don't carry much cash on me. And besides, my giving plans are kind of already established in, in other ways, but here comes the plate. And so, awkward, everybody's looking at me, and I fumble around, find some cash real quick, and put it in the plate. But it never doesn't feel good, you know? It's awkward. Surely you've experienced something like that. And maybe what's pressuring, maybe what's awkward there is is the unexpected nature of it, or maybe it's what you might call peer pressure, social pressure. You're supposed to give at that time. But whatever it is, it, it certainly doesn't feel good. It's undesirable, and it's wrong. That's not how giving in the church is supposed to be, pressured. God loves a cheerful giver. That phrase, in fact, is perhaps one of the most well-known Bible sentences about financial giving, generosity with money. God loves a cheerful giver. And that's our verse 7 this morning. It's in our passage here in 2 Corinthians chapter 9. Pretty well known, perhaps you've heard it. And what we're going to do is we, as we look at this and the, and the context around it, we'll, we'll understand what that phrase means, but we'll also understand more of what's driving it, where it comes from, and then how we can feed it, how we can fuel it and create in ourselves and in a, a church context cheerful givers, the kind that God wants. That's what we're looking at, and what we'll find there is faith working in love. That's going to be in this passage here. Paul said in, in the book of Galatians that that's the only thing that counts, in fact, in the Christian life is faith working itself out as love in all of life, and we're going to find it right here too. Driving generosity, driving cheerful giving in the church. We're in this larger context in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9 where the Apostle Paul has been talking about giving in, in a particular setting. He's been working on raising money from these churches in, in what is essentially modern-day Turkey and Greece to take an offering back to Christians who were in great need back around Jerusalem. 
We've been talking about that for some time. And, and he, at the end of this last chapter, this was last week, he relayed some of the, the actions that he was taking in the collecting of all this money so as to himself remain free from blame. To protect his own reputation. He's collecting all this money. He wanted to protect his own reputation. But that was so as to protect the reputation of the Christian message. More important. He talked about some of those actions he was taking, as, as well as what he was doing to help the Corinthians finish up their particular part of this, their collecting of their own offering monies. And he'd, he'd help them by sending this three-person team. We'd seen him described last week. Three different guys who had particular gifts. They knew the Corinthians. They loved them. They were zealous for them and confident in them. They were encouragers of them. And they were gospel preachers. They weren't money-raising gurus. They were gospel ministers. And Paul sent them to help the people there in Corinth become what we're going to see today, cheerful givers, stirring up their faith, growing them in love so that they will give. That's where we're going today, 2 Corinthians chapter 9. I'm going to read. I'm going to begin in verse 24 of the previous chapter and read down through verse 10 and then draw two observations. So this is... 2 Corinthians 8, beginning verse 24. Follow along with me, please. Paul writes, So give proof before the churches of your love and of our boasting about you to these men. Now it is superfluous for me to write to you about the ministry for the saints. For I know your readiness, of which I boast about you to the people of Macedonia, saying that Achaia has been ready since last year. And your zeal has stirred up most of them. But I am sending the brothers so that our boasting about you may not prove vain in this matter, so that you may be ready, as I said you would be. Otherwise, if some Macedonians come with me and find you are not ready, we would be humiliated, to say nothing of you, for being so confident. So I thought it necessary to urge the brothers to go on ahead of you and arrange in advance for the gift you have promised so that it may be ready as a willing gift, not as an exaction. The point is this. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has made up his mind, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. As it is written, he has distributed freely. He has given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. We'll pause there at verse 10. That's the passage, two observations from it. Here's the first. Righteous, cheerful giving is love-driven, willing generosity. Righteous, cheerful giving is what we're after. It is love-driven, willing generosity. It's driven by love. 
If you can think of it like this, this is how I'm picturing it in my mind. Like if you have a river flowing water, the what comes out of it is is this generosity, this cheerful giving, which is is a display of love, and it comes from love. Love drives the whole thing. So love comes, and love comes out of the Christian. And when that happens, that's what cheerful giving is. So that's kind of how I'm thinking. Think think of a river as we work through this passage. So the the first point here comes from the first half of the passage, which we have to look at pretty carefully because it is common to read, or I'll say misread, the beginning of chapter 9 and think that what's there is exactly the situation that we so dislike and want to avoid. Is Paul kind of working these guys? Manipulating them a little bit? I've been telling all these people about how you guys were so eager to give. We wouldn't want to be humiliated when we all show up and you don't have anything, right? So give a nice big offering so that I'll be proud of you and do it with a smile because God loves a cheerful giver. You could see it like that, and some people do, and it seems awful if that's what it is. But in fact, it's exactly the opposite. Not something to avoid, but something to to want. It's something that would be very helpful to us. So we got to track his line of thought correctly here. Chapter 9, verse 1, he says, Now it is superfluous for me to write to you about this ministry. It's unnecessary. I don't need to. Because, verse 2, I know about your readiness. I've been telling everybody about it. And it's actually been a great big motivator for many people. I know that you're ready to give, or to use the language of verse 24. I know there is a genuine love in you. This is the connection of the giving and the love coming out. I know there's a genuine love in you for these people who are in need, for the people of God. I know it. Titus knows it. This unnamed brother in verse 22, he's extremely confident that that you believe this, that you're about this. It's there. You need to show it. But I know it's there. We all know it. So I don't need to write to you to persuade you on this point, to, to help you want to. But on the other hand, I am writing and sending this ministry team so that all this talk about readiness, last year's readiness, so that it doesn't actually just kind of fall by the wayside, but so that it actually gets done and not done in an awkward situation like verse 4, if I arrive with the rest of these folks from Macedonia. That would be uncomfortable. I, I know your love is real and that you're ready to give, but I also know that you're not quite ready right now. And I don't want us to show up and you suddenly to see the offering plate coming down the row and to kind of, there may be more money that comes out of that. You you may put some money in the offering plate, but that would be like an exaction, verse 5, or it would be reluctant and under compulsion, verse 7. And God does not want that. I don't want that. You don't want that. See, it's exactly the opposite of manipulative. It's trying to avoid any kind of manipulative situation. He doesn't want something that's reluctant or under compulsion. He wants instead, this is in verse 5, for them to give the promised gift as a willing gift. He wants them to be thoughtful, conscious, planned, 
deliberate of, of their own contemplation. He says, each one, as, as each one makes up his, his or her own mind, think it through and give the gift that you promised and the gift that you want to, the blessing that comes from your heart. And I use the word blessing because actually if you look back into the language behind the word gift, used twice there, and the word bountiful, used twice in verse 6, the roots are all connected to the word blessing. He's not talking about a simple financial transaction, an, an allocation of resources. He's talking about a blessing, a gift that you promised the gift that you really want to give, that's what we're after. An expression of love. It shows the love that's in your heart because you really want to give it. You want to bless and express care and concern to meet a need. That's what God wants from you. That's what you'd want to give, and that's all that I'm aiming for. Nothing that's coerced or taken, but that is cheerfully offered. When you see it in that context, you realize that cheerful has actually nothing to do with smiling or acting chipper. It's about willingly and happily what I want to do. That's what God's after. Nothing that's, that's arm-twisted or coerced. God loves to see that. That's what's righteous in his eyes, what's pleasing to him and appropriate and right he wants a cheerful, willing gift that comes from a cheerful, willing heart. He does not care about the amount at all. He cares about the heart and the attitude with which the amount is given. Is it willing? Is it given as a blessing? That's what he wants. And the point of this first section I mean, so there, there we kind of see that's what the cheerful gift is. And the point of the first section is God wants that. Paul wants that. You, the giver, want that. Paul is intervening. He's acting so as to get them there. What does he do? This is what's helpful for us to notice because when we see this, we're going to just see not only what Paul did, but we're going to find, and that's what I can apply. That's what I can emulate. I, I want that. I, I want to be, and we want to be, cheerful givers like that too. And so what did Paul do that helped drive that kind of giving? That's what we should do too. What did he do? Well, he knows they're ready but he's going to help them get ready. You see, that word's used repeatedly there in the first few verses. I know you're ready, but I don't want you to not be ready, so I'm going to help you get ready. What's going on here is that Paul knows something is true in them that isn't right near the surface. It's kind of been buried, kind of lost and covered over. There is a love that's inside of them that's kind of gotten covered over like happens in life often for us he knows they actually do love God and love God's people but a bunch of stuff has happened in Corinth a bunch of distracting things a bunch of difficult things 
and he needs to, to address what's beneath. Love gets buried. We see it in our own lives. If you think, think if you're a parent. If you're a parent, you've got a kid, a teenager. That teenager walking around your house is sometimes a piece of work. You spend half your time kind of shaking your head back and forth at his folly. And the other half your time shaking your head back and forth at his attitude. His resistance. And really, all of that time, you're kind of distracted with your own stuff, with your own life, with your own career, with other things. And it's just, it's hard to, to say anything but, but angst when it deals with this kid who walks around like he owns a place and eats everything. There's not much affection there until something happens to him. He gets in a car accident. He gets seriously ill. And suddenly, all of the sediment that has settled down, uncovering over the, the bedrock there, it's all kind of settled down there. A rush of water comes through and clears all of that away. And what was actually always there, a deep affection for this one, kind of roars up in your, your feelings, your fears, your loves, your prayers, your, your hopes, your pleadings. You want what's best for him. You love him deeply. You didn't like come to love him. You always did, but it was covered over by all the stuff of life that had settled in on top of it and clouded it. Something needed to move all the sediment away so you could see it again. It could surface. Paul assumes, Paul knows, not just about the Corinthians, but about Christians, that Paul knows something happened in us. There was a deep affection change that happened in us when we became a Christian. When you became a Christian, God planted in you a new and deep love for him and love for his people. It's there, but he also knows it gets covered over. He has seen it in Christians, he's seen it in the Corinthians, and it's currently kind of buried he wants to help get them ready, not by telling them to give generously, not just by telling them to give willingly, but by moving away the sediment so that the love rises. What does he do then? Verse 3. We talked about this last week. He sends this ministry team. who are not fundraisers, who are not organizational gurus, who are gospel ministers. And they're going to step into the water with these guys, if you will, and they're not just going to say, you should give in love willingly. They're going to help pour the love of God into their lives. They're going to preach the gospel to the church they're going to come, and they're going to stand in the midst of these folks, and they're going to tell them about, remind them about, model with zeal the God who under no compulsion, with no reluctance, not grudgingly, himself gave a long-promised and willing gift of blessing. This is the giving God 
who long ago promised, I'm going to send you something that will be a blessing, not because I have to or because I, I really don't want to, but it is my deepest desire to send to you this blessing. I, I'm going to meet your need. And he sent his son. And when the gift, Jesus, came, he not grudgingly, not with arm twisted, not because he was stuck and had to, but he willingly, because he wanted to, because it was his desire in love to care, he gave himself his life. He went to the cross. By choice. He stepped up and he grabbed hold of it. He gave himself so that he could give to us what? So that he could give to us forgiveness, redemption, life. They're going to preach that to the church and remind them, we stand in the middle of a, of a vast river that is love rushing at you. Paul knows they know that, but sometimes something needs to stir up the soil. He needs to, to blow away the sediment, and he's going to say, let me proclaim to you something, someone, the, the greatest, the original lover. And let me remind you of the gift that he gave willingly, the blessing poured out, Christ and Christ crucified to meet your need. Our deepest need has always been singular. Our deepest need is forgiveness before God that we may know him. To be brought back into relationship with him. And God said, I got it. By choice, mine. Here's the answer I give. And the son says, I give myself. Reminded of that, here's the cross, here's the death of Jesus, here's life given, here is forgiveness given, here is relationship with God given. Gift and blessing, blessing and gift bountifully poured out on us. That's the beautiful truth of the gospel, what Paul acted to make sure these guys heard. Because when you hear that, it moves in and it changes us. Sinks into your head and your heart and you come to remember and in a new way more deeply believe. I'm the benefactor of a generous and good and loving God who has loved me deep, wide, long, high. And loved, we love. Because he first loved us, we love. This is the teaching of the Bible. Paul understands that. So he doesn't just say love. He says, let me tell you how you have been loved. Love drives this whole thing. The love of God for us in Christ. Sometimes we need to be stirred up by the preaching of the gospel. Sometimes we need to be stirred up by, by seeing the beauty of God at work in our lives, experiencing it in, in God's people and in God's community. That's what Paul acts. 
He sends people who will show it in their lives and who will proclaim it in their message so that the Corinthians will see and be moved by love to love. That's what happened. That's what has to happen. So we, before, long before, always, 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 long before we talk about money or talk about giving anything, we have to talk about and remember that we have been given to. We have been loved. So that, in fact, is the takeaway. Do you know that? Now, maybe some of us here... You don't know that. You have not heard that before. It is new. It is new news. Well, here's the offer then. Come be loved. Open-handed say, I am, I am ready to receive that gift. Please give it to me. I need that. I see, Father, my sin against you, how I have said in so many different ways, out loud into my heart, no thanks, I got it, I'm going my own way. I see that and I understand that can't fly against a holy God, the one who reigns. And I see the gift offered to me in Christ. Thank you, I'll take that. I need it. Maybe that's you. It could be. I know most of us, though, you, you understand that. And so I'll, I'll still ask you the same question. Do you know this? See, Paul's operating so, so often. Paul's operating with the Corinthians. I know you know this, but I need to tell you again. I know you're ready. I need to help you get ready. There's, there's something there that maybe for us, maybe today, maybe next week, needs to be stirred. The, 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 the top, the stuff, the sediment scraped off so that you can come down to the reality of the love of God for you. And believe it. You're in Christ, his beloved one. That's the most glorious truth ever, anywhere. And resting in that is life. And it's the ground that frees us up then to love. I'm loved. I'm okay. I'm secured. I'm taken care of. I can give. Do you know that? And do you believe it? I ask that question, do you believe it? It begins to move us on to the next point, a point about faith. God delights in a cheerful giver, one who willingly, generously Gives driven by love, by the desire to love because I have been loved. But to see that process, there is in us somewhere a, a question, do I believe that? I've been asking it, and now that's the second point. So here's the second observation. Righteous, cheerful giving is fueled by faith in this giving, loving God. So again, the, the concept here, you got the, got the river, and that's what's going on. But for me to actually give, I need to believe that's what's going on. Faith. 
fueled by faith in the giving God. At verse 6, Paul comes to an interesting and I think very important reality behind our giving. The reality that God is this generous, faithful giver. And in verse 6, the context changes a little bit. He means materially now. So we've talked about a number of times, I mentioned it, I was just working on this again up in verse 9 of chapter 8, that God gives and makes us rich, and that's a spiritual rich. It's metaphorical there. But now we're going to see he actually turns out and he means materially. This is interesting. And I think important. Because we all know, I can, I can track through verse 9 and I can hear about the love of God and I can, I can hear the metaphorical, I have been made rich. I'm an heir of heaven. I have so much. I have life. I can hear that. But at the same time, there is this reality that... If I give willingly, cheerfully, sacrificially, generously, that's real money. That's not metaphorical money. That's real money. And when I send that money out the door, I do not have it anymore. Which means I cannot use it for anything else. It's not here. I I want to love, but that is going to cost me real money. What of that? And so verse 6 and following gets material to answer that question. What of that? Well, let me tell you. Let's look. Verse 6, sowing and reaping. In the Bible commonly, sowing and reaping are connected. God has designed life so that we reap what we sow. And commonly that's connected to work ethic, but it's also here in a financial context. He who sows, that is, gives sparingly, which is not defined. We need to remember, he always means according to your means. So one person's $5 gift might be bountiful and one person's $500 gift might be sparing. It's according to means. He who gives sparingly will reap, receive from God sparingly. But he who gives abundantly, rich blessing, bountifully gives, will be given by God abundance, rich blessing. Give bountifully, and God will give to you bountifully. So, think that through yourself and give whatever you want to. God wants you to give willingly, a cheerful giver. That's the flow there. There are two equations in life. Sparing equals sparing, bountiful equals bountiful. Pick one and give what you want. That's the, that's the simple point here, which of course raises a whole bunch of questions. And so Paul kind of steps on the gas, leans into that, and elaborates again and again and again in the following verses. God is able to make All grace abound to you. This is verse 8. Listen to the number of times he says all. God is able to make all grace abound to you. Whatever kind of grace you can think of, in this context especially materially, he is able to make it all abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times. 
That's a lot of alls. All sufficiency. So whatever it is that you would need such that you would say, if I don't have that, I'm in trouble. I can't make it. He'll cover that. All sufficiency. Not just most of the time, at all times, and not just in many things, in everything. All sufficiency in all things at all times. That's what reap bountifully looks like. He can and does have the ability to make everything happen such that we have everything that we need all the time in every realm. Heavy, repeated emphasis so that we can't miss the point. He gives bountifully. Christians can't outgive God. You hear that often. It's true. We can't outgive God. But notice carefully that is a statement made in the context of a giving cycle. I think we often hear, maybe even say, that phrase, and we mean it kind of like a one-off. I can't outgive God. I gave $10,000, God gave me $11,000, and I, end, I tried to give away 10, I ended up with 11. Like it's a one-off. It's not what he says. Not what he means. Other people use this idea, even use that phrase, in a really manipulative and destructive way. Watch out for this. They talk to somebody who's got a need or who's in a very vulnerable spot, who is facing a, a, a serious health situation or has a relational difficulty. You cannot give God, you know. So if you give money, then God will respond to you and he will give a blessing. He will fix that. How people extort people who are vulnerable. That's not what he says either. This is in a context of a giving cycle. All sufficiency in all things at all times so that, the verse says, you keep reading, having all this you may abound in every good work or all good work. You sow bountifully, he'll give to you bountifully so that you surely have bounty to sow again every good work. In which case then you would reap so that you could sow and reap and sow and reap on and on and on. As it is written, quoting from Psalm 112, which is a psalm that describes, it's a long list of this is what the righteous man looks like. The one who walks with God looks like this. And one verse says there, the verse quoted here, this righteous man, he gives freely to the poor. Not once, over and over again. His righteousness isn't a one-time thing. It goes on and on. It endures forever. It's never-ending. He keeps on giving, and he keeps on righteously pouring out to those who are in need. And God keeps on giving him more seed so that he can keep on pouring it out. Or if I can say the same thing again, Paul might say, verse 6, 8, 9, and now again, verse 10. It's all the same thing. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed 
for sowing. See that? I'll multiply your seed for sowing. And then the fruit, the the harvest of that righteousness will also increase. What's he saying? Again and again and again, as this righteous giving, this, this from the heart, this cheerful free giving comes out of you, you give in need, you give to need in love, I'll keep giving you seed. Again and again and again, bountifully so. You keep putting it in the field, I'll keep putting it in your hand. It's a giving cycle. Four times in these last five verses, he says the same thing. It would be hard to make it any clearer. God is looking for giving partners. You see what he's saying here? God's looking for giving partners. Somebody who will sow his money, who will give his money away, cheerfully, happily, putting it into his field, loving his kingdom and his people as much as he does, being as generous and seeking to meet their needs as much as he does. And when he finds that person, he'll back the truck up and channel his money through you so that it gets out there. He knows it'll get out there through you. It won't get stuck in the barns that you built for yourself to store it up for yourself. It'll get out there. So he'll give He'll give, he'll give, and he'll use you. That's the sweetness in this. That he'll use you. He's going to use you to build his kingdom. It it says there at the end of verse 10, and there will be an increasing harvest to your righteousness. He's going to use you to bear fruit, to to bring in a, a harvest That will be fruit that you will get to enjoy now and forever. He's not just going to use you for his own purposes. He's going to use you for his own purposes that is a blessing to you. An opportunity to store up your treasure, not here but in heaven. He'll use you. That is a great privilege And now it comes to the question, do I believe that or not? I follow that through. Truth be told, I'm I'm preparing this sermon and I'm kind of feeling like, how am I going to say the same thing like four times? It is the same thing over and over again with different analogies. How am I going to say the same thing four times? And then it occurred to me, well, Paul said it this way four times because I think, he thinks, we don't think like that. I think he thinks we doubt that. And so he teaches and he uses an analogy and he quotes the Old Testament scripture to show this is really, this is what God wants us to hear and to believe Send it on downstream. I will pour more into your life. And I mean that not just metaphorically, I mean that materially. I will pour more into your life. 
seed for sowing, and oh, by the way, daily bread. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing. So his focus here is on the seed and the sowing, but he does not skip over that. I, I will provide your daily bread for you. I will. You don't sow bread, you eat it. The Lord is saying he will meet our needs as we send it on down the river. Trust me. And that's the real issue behind giving, behind love for others. Faith, do I trust the Lord? Because faith, because love costs me. When I give it, it's out the door and gone. And I don't have it anymore. And I'm left wondering, will I have enough? That's our question. Will I have enough? Does God have my back? Does he have my support? Will I end up with insufficient funds? Will, will I end up with too little? Will I starve? Will I end up homeless? Or if not that, will I end up just kind of just barely squeaking by in, in kind of this miserable life with nothing to enjoy at all, subsisting? Those are our fears and our suspicions. And they're exacerbated by, the, by the, the world that's around us. We live in the United States. These would be less acute, I think, if nobody had anything. But everybody around us has abundance. Everybody around us has stuff. And so we see it, and, and our lives get intertwined with it very easily, and our fear and our suspicion is, okay, if what you're telling me is that I, I'm supposed to give it away. That, that's going to cost me, and you're going to supply, and I'm supposed to give that away too. Where does it just, where, does any come to me? And you told me that bread comes to me, but that I'm worried that that's just subsistence. Okay, I, I believe this a little bit, but help my unbelief here, because I am, I am afraid That's where the promise of the gospel steps in and invites faith. He made you his child, and he is the one who provides seed and bread daily. So sow, and you will have reward, and you will have bread. And as far as will that be just subsistence, and will that be enjoyable? Will there be enough life for you in that? But let's get honest. Around Christmas time, I was looking at, at, at uh, the, whatever the latest version is of the, of the iPhone watch, iWatch, whatever those are called. You know, you can buy Hermes bands for a watch it's a strap of leather that costs several thousand dollars for a watch band. Or you could not do that. You can just buy the watch itself for a few hundred dollars. Or you can buy a Timex for $25. And in the end, you know what time it is, all the same. And you probably have a cell phone anyway. 
Now, I, I'm, not, I'm not bashing on the watch. If you got the watch, several, several people in my family do. That's fine. But how much more life do you have? What we're worried about really is, if I give that away, I'm going to get bread, but not the Hermes watch band, or not, not the watch itself. I'm going to end up with a Timex. Let's be honest about that. How much life did you lose there between that and the Timex? I might end up not driving that kind of car or that kind of car or that kind of car, but that kind of car. And yeah, we'll notice that for sure, for sure. And I, I don't like that kind of car either. But how much life did you lose there? Be honest about that. It, it's not going to be fun. I mean, it, that's going to be harder. That's going to be less desirable. Indeed. Okay. So let's be real honest about it. Let's turn back to chapter 8, verse 1 and verse 2. The churches of Macedonia, end of verse 1. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. That's where he starts all this. Those guys had Timex watches if they were lucky, and they had this car if they were lucky, comparatively speaking. And somehow they found seed to sow and bread to eat and lived, it says, in abundance of what? The Americans, I think we need to be honest about this. I don't think we believe this. They lived in abundance, not abundance of clothes, cars, vacations, iPhones, and video games, in abundance of, what's the word? What does it say? Joy. In what? They don't have anything. Yeah, they do. They've got bread to eat, all the sufficiency that they need. And they've got Jesus. They have Christ. And in him all the bread they need. And crowns in heaven as they send down river and it stores up for them. They are rich and materially provided for and living in abundance of joy. I don't think we believe that. I don't think we believe that's possible. I think we maybe think, well, maybe in Macedonia or maybe in another place, maybe another time, but not in America. What I need for life here now is maybe not the Hermes, but I need the next one down. And there is, again, nothing wrong with that. I'm not looking at anybody's cars, houses, or watch wristbands. I don't care. I'm talking about your heart and mine because I hardly believe it myself. 
I'm, I'm even in this moment considering all kinds of things about what I'm going to buy here and there and what we're, you know, modifications to our house and what kind of car we need. And I'm thinking about all that stuff myself, just like you are, just like you are. But we need to be honest with ourselves. Do we actually believe that Macedonian abundant joy is possible with squat possessing everything? Bread to eat. I'm sufficient. It's okay. He provided everything I need all the time, always. And I have Christ. We got to ask the Macedonians how they felt about life, and I'll bet you, I'll bet you a dollar, maybe five, that they were enjoying life more than many of us. With nothing and Christ, and crowns. That's the life that Christ died to secure for us. Forgiven and fruitful, joyful, near him, linked in love to others, aware of, because it's all been scraped away, aware of the vast, wide, long, deep love pouring into us and then pouring it out, knowing that some will be set aside for us for our bread to eat, but believing that the water always runs because God is who he is. He is the one who gives seed and he is the one who gives bread. He's the one who gives life. He's the one who gave us the bread of life that we might know him and in faith walk with him abundantly joyful, cheerful, generous givers. That's what he made us for. And in, in no way whatsoever do I want to be pugnacious with, with us as a group in any kind of condemning way. Not, not remotely. I'm in this too, but, I, but let's be honest. Do we believe that? He invites our faith with the message of the gospel and reminds us that he is the God who gave before us, who gives to us now, and who gives on forever. Let me pray. Father, help, please. Help us to walk with you and trust you and enjoy you. This is our need and our privilege. So show us Christ and help us to see your giving, generous, loving nature and then use that to move us to give. Thank you, Lord. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcebfree.org or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. Our mailing address is Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121.